Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Two years ago, and I don't really, really remember how I came across this article, two years ago, I stumbled upon an article called The Social Cost of Bad Online Marketing on the Harvard Business Review. And it's this article really talks about how businesses are all about like lead generation and squeezing every leads possible through the funnel uh, to get people hooked using the product. It's all about producing garbage content to get people interested, which leads to a race to the bottom. And the author also talk about the fact that perhaps we should stop feeding the bears as consumers, as people, uh, by giving your email away, like to download a shitty ebook or to, to sign up to a webinar. And that maybe companies will then start produce better content and therefore internet will, will become a better place. And this was one of the main inspiration to this podcast, Everyone Hates Marketers. And I'm really happy to have Alexandra Samuel, who is the author of this article in this podcast today. So Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So let's talk just briefly about who you are, because if I read your full bio, we will we'll basically talk for 20 minutes. So <laughs> I, t I try to summarize it as much as I can, but you've done a lot of things in your professional and personal life. So you're a freelance writer, researcher, a mother of two, you're a speaker, the author of Work Smarter with Social Media, a guide to managing Evernote, Twitter, LinkedIn, and your email that was published in 2015. You're also a contributor to the Wall Street Journal and Harvard Business Review, as I mentioned. And you help companies cope with the transition to a digital world by tackling everything from the business and social impact of big picture trends, like the emergence of the collaborative economy, to the nitty gritty of making productive use of digital tools. So I think that's a nice summary. And obviously, you've done much more than that. And people can check you at uh, alexandrasamuel.com. Uh, so there's one big problem that you like to tackle and that you seem to, to, to tackle with your, uh, with your clients and, and uh, the readers. It's, it's really hard to break through the noise and get people's attention uh, nowadays, especially in the internet, right? It is hard. And why is that? Well, I think we have moved very quickly from a world in which uh, you know, the web one world of, of static websites to the web two, it seems so dated to even call it that, but the web two world of user generated content has led to such an explosion of content. And of course, you know, the development of, of Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms mean that everybody's a publisher now. So, you know, we've, we've moved from a world in which uh, the creation of content was relatively narrowly controlled to a world in which it's democratized, which is wonderful, but it means that basically every Everybody is competing, you know, for the same number of eyeballs, but against a much larger set of competitors. Right. And this is this is becoming more and more of a, more and more of a problem. And I feel that when I talk to, to listeners and marketers in particular, I feel that they are really overwhelmed by all of this and they really don't mm -hmm. know where, 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 where to choose, what tactics to use, what strategy to use. And they are really drowning in a sea of possibilities. Um, so today, what I like to go through is, is a subject that you are a, an expert in. Um, so we talked about storytelling a few times in this podcast before. We also talked about on other episodes, you know, about making sense of the data uh, that you have available to you. But we haven't really talked about mixing the two. So telling stories with data. And this is something that I'd like to go through with you in a step-by-step -step, and hopefully marketers and, and listeners can, can take that away and apply that in their business. So why do you think, you know, telling stories with data would, could help marketers and listeners, you know, rise above the noise and, and break through the noise uh, out there? Sure. I mean, I think it's helpful to frame this with a, a little bit of my own personal journey through this space. Um, I've been involved in social media since before it was called social media. Um, and, and I guess I started blogging in 2004 when it was relatively easy, certainly by today's standards, to get um, attention. And um, and so I didn't have that problem that a lot of of social media users who've come online more recently have of, of just trying to even get a toehold. Um, and so, you know, I had been um, 
blogging on my own site, blogging on some other sites. I'd been a contributor to the Harvard Business Review for for a while. And I'd had, you know, some some blog posts over the years that really blew up and some that disappeared. That's just natural for anybody who's publishing online. Um, And then I found myself, uh, I guess, about five or six years ago now. um, At the time, I was running a research center at, at Emily Carr University here in Vancouver. And we had partnered with a company called Vision Critical, uh, which is a customer intelligence software company, uh, to do a project around um, data visualization. Vision Critical was trying to think about how it could make customer feedback data more compelling, more visually engaging. Uh, Emily Carr is an art and design university, so we had a whole bunch of design students who were interested in the opportunity to work with original data. And um, and we did a study through, through Vision Critical. We did a big um, research survey of, of how people use social media. And then we took a slice of that. One of the things that came out of that was about Pinterest, which was just getting started at the time. And um, one of the students who worked with the Pinterest data just created this brilliant infographic or, or data visualization um, to talk about how Pinterest was putting people uh, in stores. And I ended up turning that into an article for HBR, a, um, a blog post for HBR, with an original uh, infographic to go with it that was designed by this very talented designer named uh, Cheryl Lowe, who's now at Lemon Lee. And um, you know, like I said, I'd had plenty of, of hits at HBR over the years, but the reaction to this one post was so enormous that it was really an eye opener for me. Um, it just it just spread everywhere instantly, and and years later was still getting shared. And that made me realize that, you know, in this increasingly noisy world where there's so much content being created all the time, providing original data or or even repurposing existing data in an original and visually compelling way is a almost a surefire way of standing out from the crowd. Now, now I say that with caution because if there's one thing I've learned from the arc of working on the social web for more than gosh, now it's getting close to 20 years. It's that, you know, one day's surefire hit in a few years, everybody's doing it. It doesn't have the same currency. But at this moment, still sharing uh, an original data driven story is far more likely to garner you significant attention than just about any other kind of content you can create. Right. And and that's because I, I think Yes, in the future, as you said, the currency, like the value of such a, an activity might decrease slightly, but it's still rooted in, in first principles. Like telling stories will always work. If you tell a good story, people are wired to listen to good stories. And then using your own data means that you have an angle, you have something that is quite unique, and therefore it has never been shared before. So those two, com- the combination of the two kind of makes sense in the long term as well. Yes things might change, but unlikely. Well, I think part of, I mean, I think you're right in the sense that good stories will always resonate if people can find them. But the reality now is that it's very hard. You can write a fan. I mean, I have written some pieces. Um, and I mean, anyone who's a writer or blogger will have stories like this, right? I've written some pieces that I am so proud of and I'm so in love with and spent so much time on that, like 40 people have read. So telling a good story is not a guarantee of anything. And and so the problem is, how do you get your good story out and about? And what I've found is that when you have your, when you are sharing a story that is data driven, there are always going to be these little bite sized nuggets that other people want to pick up. And so part of the value of a data driven story is you're much more likely to get media coverage, social media coverage, people sharing you know, the infographics that you include in your report. And so then that can drive attention and traffic back to your story. Right. So let's get into a stop, a a sort of a methodology to help you as a listener to, to understand how to tell good stories with data. So what is, what would you say is the number one step? What do you usually start with, with clients and with people you advise? Well, what, what I usually start with actually is the headline. (laughs) I, like people to start by thinking about, you know, if we're going to do a project, what would be the dream headline to come out of this? And it's quite important, I think, when you're doing a project like that to 
recognize there are kind of two camps when it comes to data storytelling. In one camp, you just want an interesting headline, and in the other camp, you need a certain kind of headline. So let me let me give you an example. With Vision Critical, we have done a, a number of these uh, large-scale kind of pilot project studies that show the companies on Vision Critical's platform, how they can use social media data and um, survey data in combination, or what kinds of, um, of customer feedback surveys might help them chart a new direction for their business. And um, when we did that, what we cared about was showing people that they could find something exciting. We cared about an exciting headline, but we actually didn't have a dog in the race. It really didn't matter to us, ultimately, whether Pinterest was putting people into stores or pulling people out of stores. Uh, what you're looking for there is just a um, sexy, interesting, surprising, and ideally counterintuitive um, headline. So, you know, in, in the case of um, one of our social media analytics studies, we showed that the vast majority of social media content, uh, actually close to 90% of what companies see on social media from their customers, comes from less than a third of their customers. So that one um, finding is the kind of headline you can build a whole program around. But a lot of the time, if you are um, doing a data-driven study, you actually can't be that agnostic. You need to have a certain kind of headline that um, drives your particular business model or business value. So for example, a home improvement, there's a home improvement company called Home Advisor that did a really wonderful exam, uh, infographic data, data project that I often um, show people that showed the total amount of, of um, money that Americans lose to home improvement scams every year. Well, if it was a small number, it wouldn't be a very sexy headline. And it, and it also wouldn't really tell the kind of story they want to tell, which is that you need to be sure that you're getting a reliable contractor. So um, starting from that headline, starting from what would be a finding here that would really cause a splash and serve our story if we have a particular angle we need it to serve, um, and then working backwards from that. Now, you, you can't um, count on getting the story you want out of, out of a, a data-driven project at all. But I find that starting by thinking about what the kinds of headlines would ideally be really helps to inform the way you approach a project so that you do come up with some interesting findings. Right. And I assume, let's take an example of Let's say we want to do a massive survey to all of our customers and to find out how they, how they, what they think of marketing as a practice, let's say, and how much do they trust marketers, right? Um, mm -hmm. Let's say if I name this, 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 uh, this piece, like the state of marketing in 2018, it might not resonate as well as something such as only 7% of people trust marketers or 93% of people don't trust marketers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you're thinking already about the final result and we know, and maybe if you're listening to this, you might not know, but the headline is the number one thing to nail when you publish something new, because this is the, this is the first thing that they will, that people will see, right? Absolutely. And, you know, let's play with that example for a minute, because think about it. If you let, let's say, you know, you want to put out a, a data driven piece of content to promote this podcast and you are trying to tell this story about how everyone hates marketers. Well, as you say, um, you know, coming back with a result that says 93 percent of people um, don't trust marketers, you know, that's that's a good result. But first of all, you have no idea if you're going to get that. And second of all, you know, what's the survey question you ask to get that? Or how do you I mean, I was about to say, how do you go about the only way you can really go about getting that kind of data point is through a survey. Um, and so if you ask people a question like, do you trust marketers? It's kind of a meaningless question in a way, like it's not really going to give you um, like people probably will, a high number of people probably will say they don't, but what does that really tell you? And so that's where thinking in terms of um, more concrete kinds of questions, and I guess we can think of this as our second insight here. When you're designing a survey, really try and ask people both a range of questions so that you have some room to play with your results. Maybe you don't get the headline you thought you were going to get, but you find something else interesting instead. And also frame your questions in, in a really concrete way because you're more likely to get 
get an accurate result. So for example, um, give them a scenario. You are thinking about purchasing a new, I was about to say stereo, but who buys stereo <laughs> anymore? Nobody. You're thinking about buying a new car. Um, what are, you know, here are the, you know, you encounter the following sources of information, a television ad about the car, um, a brochure from the dealership, a conversation with a friend who recently bought the similar car, um, a series of Facebook posts by people you don't know about their experiences with the car or a magazine review of the car. And then you, and, and ideally you're not even just saying trust, you sort of say, you know, which is going to have the biggest, you know, impact for you on judging the specific characteristics of this, whether this car has the specific features you need. Um, what's going to help you decide if this car is good value for money? What is going to help you decide um, if this car suits your lifestyle? And so the more specific you can get, the better. Um, and, and ideally, you're even asking about a specific purchase. Um, thinking about the last time you bought a car, or ideally thinking about something more recent, thinking about the last time you bought a new kind of cereal, what, did, what shaped your decision to buy that cereal? And the more you can get people to think about specific purchase decisions, the more you can really drill down and get them to be specific about what influenced them, and then think about what you end up with. So you've asked people about their last cereal decision, and then they've told you the different things that factored in. My, I tried it at a friend's house. My friend told me they liked it. I saw a bunch of people posting about it on social media. Um, I saw a TV ad for it. And you then break up those results and say, here are the sources that came from marketers. Here are the sources that came from peers. And look, the ones that came from marketers, nobody really listened to. Why? Because people hate marketers. <laughs> right. So how would you maybe categorize this advice to because I, I think it's still a bit blurry in my head uh, in terms of the mm -hmm. type of question you can ask, because you have some, so much experience in that, it might sound easy to you. I'm just trying to think um, in my head and listeners' head how it can even be uh, more detailed. So the, I think we're missing a step, though, because, yes, we're yes. coming up with the headline, we're coming up with the questions but or the survey, but how do we even start to pick the topic or the theme? Like, how do you typically advise people to do that in the first place? Well, you know, it really depends. So I, I mentioned already that you have some scenarios where you're just looking for a headline because frankly, you're just looking for attention and inbounds and um, mentions. And then you've got scenarios where you've got a specific message to deliver. And, um, if you have a message that you're specifically trying to deliver, like your example, let's show that people don't trust marketers, then your um, data-driven content project is going to be more obvious, right? You know you're going to do something around how consumers feel about marketing. If you're just, if you just came to me and said, you know, I am Acme Serial Incorporated, and I just want people to hear about us, and it can really be anything. We can do anything that has to do with mornings or breakfast or health or food. Then we're like wide open, right? So then it's like, well, if all I'm looking for is attention, how do I choose what my topic area is? And in a sense, that's no different from any other content marketing scenario where you're just looking for attention and you don't necessarily have a subject matter. You're looking for themes that underline your brand's value proposition that resonate with your brand's positioning. And then the only difference really is, you know, I, I try and look for data-driven projects in areas that are not yet colonized, right? So if, if you're Acme Serial and you want to do this data-driven project, you know, surveys about people's healthful eating. I mean, there's so much data out there on eating habits and what food is good for you, and what food isn't bad for you and why people eat what they do. Like, forget it. Like, that's not even you're not even going to get any attention. But you might get attention for something quirky and funny about like, morning, what makes mornings difficult for people like, you know, morning people versus night owls and what helps them get going in the morning. So you're, you're always trying to look for, you, you don't, you, you won't always be able to do your data driven project in a wide open space, particularly if you have a particular message you're trying to deliver. But if you're just looking for brand awareness, you know, look for the most wide open territory you can find. Right. So I would say uh, as the first step is probably to map out all of the potential angles you could use. And 
that comes back from an interview, uh, one of the episodes with Lexi Mills, where we talked about digital PR. And she talked about something very similar, about finding the right angle, uh, the right theme uh, to start with. So straight away, you talk about cereals and you made the association with mornings, you made the association with healthy eating, you made the association with, I don't know, milk, uh, whatever it is. So, so straight away, I can visualize a, a mind map of some sort where you start drawing ideas, anything that relates to your product or service, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the truth is it's much harder to do this in the abstract than it is in a in a concrete um, situation, because when you're working with a specific brand, I mean, I shouldn't say when you're when I'm working with a specific brand and we're having these conversations about what kind of content project they want to tackle, you know, with data, there's always something you're trying to tie into. It's the campaign themes of the year. It's the new brand position. It's a new um uh, audience or market you're trying to tap into. So you're never you're never in wide open territory. And frankly, if you're in wide open territory, you, you shouldn't be trying to do a project like this because it's just, you know, throwing spaghetti against the wall. You, you know, a data driven project typically is more of an investment than other kinds of content. So you don't want to do it until you have some validation that this is a useful subject or area or audience to be addressing. Right. And I, I think I think step one is actually to, to have an objective in the first place, to have something that you want to achieve, right? Yes. Yes. Step two, trying to find angles, trying to find themes and topics that could potentially be of, of interest. Something that, you know, as you say, funny, quirky, original, something that hasn't been colonized, as you said. Do you have any advice on that and how to find the right the right angle, even before you think of the, maybe the headline is the, the headline is, as yes. I mentioned, is maybe yes, step that's two, right. right? So step two would be the headline and then step three would be, okay, working backwards and how do, do I find something associated with that, right? Um, well, step three usually is, you know, once you have some vague area of the territory you're working in, very quickly, it becomes a question of sourcing the data. And, and honestly, the sooner you can get to that conversation, the better, because I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've started down the road with somebody to, to think about a data driven project. And then we've quickly discovered either that there are like 50 other things just like this, that, you know, there's no point in shouting above the noise, even if we think the 50 white papers already out there suck. That doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be able to make ourselves heard. So and then let me other- stop you right there, because it is a mm-hmm. very important thing. How do you actually find out whether a space or particular topic is polluted to the point or colonized to the point where you can't really make a dent? Oh, I mean, I, I it's straight up Google. You know, I, I just do typically I do Google searches on, you know, breakfast foods and survey breakfast foods and data like I do searches for basically whatever our theme is plus the word data or plus the word survey I typically search on both white paper that kind of thing and let's say you you search for cereals mornings plus survey whatever it is right Mm -hmm. and you find 50 of them like when, what is the threshold? Is it something that you kind of have a feeling for and it's difficult for you to describe or do you have yeah. thresholds that say, you know, fuck that is just too much out there? Yeah. I mean, it's very contextual and it really depends on who I'm working with and what their budget is. So if I'm doing a small project with somebody for like $10,000 and, and, you know, we're aiming to do, you know, one feature infographic and a few blog posts, then the space needs to be more open. Whereas if I'm working with somebody who's spending tens of thousands of dollars and planning on spending, you know, $10,000 or more on data acquisition alone, then we can be like the dinosaur who comes in and like stomps on all the littler surveys. And I mean, I kind of have done that a few times. It's really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think for listeners out there, some of them might work in both of the of the of the budget size that you mentioned, some of them for even smaller size. So I guess, the smaller your budget, the smaller the resources you have, the, the nicher, the deeper you have to go in one specific angle, right? Yeah, I mean, in in less, I mean, I think there's always exceptions. You know, you, you can aim to, it really depends on your market. If you have a local market, you can do a local version of a data-driven project and, and have the definitive data source on, you know, what 
car purchasing looks like in Des Moines. And, um, and then you can, you know, stand out that way. But yeah, it's going to be hard. I mean, honestly, like, I don't think the world needs another data driven project on um, CMO spending, right? Like we got a lot, (laughs) a lot out there on like how CMOs use their budgets and really how many more CMO surveys, like I swear to God, I don't know how any CMOs have time to do any of their work because it seems they spend their whole lives answering (laughs) surveys about CMO spending. (laughs) That's so true. That's so true. I've seen so many in the past. There's a lot like this. Yeah. And then the state of X in X years. It's yeah. So do yourself a favor and, and, and don't pollute more, you know, a space that is already full of, of things totally. that have been done before. And instead, maybe take a big, a bit of a risk and try to find an angle that is a bit more original, right? Absolutely. And actually, this ties into the theme of your podcast, which is, um, I think, it's, you know, the, the single best cure for bad marketing, in my view, is to is to sincerely think of marketing as a service. And, you know, I think about a lunch I had with a with a colleague of mine many years ago at a time when I was doing only marketing, cause-related marketing. And he was doing a lot of commercial marketing. And I was shocked but also touched that he was like a true believer and really believed that these big commercial campaigns he was doing for like video game companies were of service because they help people know about the game. Now, that might not have been my jam, but I, I really do believe that's the lens through which we need to approach marketing if we want it to be at least not garbagey. And, you know, data-driven projects are a really important check on those instincts because you have to ask yourself, like, is this data actually going to be, if not useful, at least interesting? And if you wouldn't find this survey to be interesting or useful, or if you wouldn't find this analysis of social media data or mobile app data or whatever, you know, or spending data, whatever data you're going to be working with, if you aren't personally curious about the results, then forget it. It's it's not an interesting project. And so, you know, that I think is really the the place you have to to check all of these projects from um, because they do take resources and you know, they can be really fascinating. And one of the things I, I mean, frankly, one of the reasons I've ended up doing so much of this work is because I, I mean, it almost doesn't depend for me on the topic. I get super curious about a range of subjects once you start looking at real data around it. But you, you know, you do need to have that personal curiosity driver. So let's let's take a step back. So we say step one is to to map out the, the potential themes uh, no, the objective. Step one is to come up with your objective, the key thing that you're trying to achieve. Step two is to come up with the headline. Step three is to drill down into the, the type of the angle, the theme that you'd like to go for. And I assume at this stage in step three, you're still not really 100% sure of the actual angle you're going to use because you need to collect no. data and the data will also inform the angle. You might totally. find something that you have never would have like thought about, right, from the data. Yeah. And I think, I mean, my my political science professors would speak very sternly to me if if I advised anyone um, to think that they knew their outcome before doing their research. And what I would say is, um, you know, you you especially if you're spending any kind of money at all, you really need to be sure that what you're doing is something that will be interesting and publishable for you, regardless of what the outcome is. If you you know, you don't want to spend twenty five thousand dollars doing a whole bunch of research that that ultimately shows that your product or your brand is terrible. And um, and so you need to be approaching your data driven projects in a way where you can be a little bit agnostic about the outcome. And, um, and even if you kind of go in with some hopes for what the headlines will be, you're going to have to stay open and actually let the data, um, speak to you. Now you can pick and choose, look, this is not, I'm not, this is an academic publishing here. This isn't journalism. Um, if you're doing content marketing, you're under no obligation. If you do a study of, um, you know, transaction data as as um, an indicator of, you know, where people's financial priorities are, you're not under any obligation to share every possible finding from that. You, you know, if your findings about breakfast foods are that people um, are happiest if they're spending more money on eggs than on cereal, you're not under any obligation to publish that finding. But you'd better um, hope that there's some other stuff there, like people who wake up earlier are happier than people who wake up later. And and then that's the finding you publish instead. 
Right. I hope that's not true, though. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Right. So, uh, step four then is is collecting good data, and how do you go about this? Well, I, I think step four is really, in a sense, the, the, sort of step three and step four have to happen in tandem. So you have some ideas about what you want to pursue, and then you have some ideas about how you're going to source your data, and and you essentially can't lock your topic until you lock your data source. Um, particularly if you are not in a position to collect original data. So when it comes to thinking about about data sources, um, you are basically doing one of three things. You're either repurposing public domain or possibly licensing pre-existing data. So you're basically working with somebody else's data. You're using data you have that's proprietary to you. Um, that you already have in hand, like your customer purchase data or social media data, you know, whatever, you, you know, d different businesses have access to different kinds of data sets. Um, so you may have data at your fingertips already. And I find that's often the case with many, many companies as they have data already, but they haven't been thinking of it as content. They've been thinking of it as customer intelligence. And so it's like, let's look at the data we already have. We're already looking at our web traffic. We're already collecting data on our customers' transactions. Um, how could we turn that into content? So that's the other piece is kind of shopping from your own warehouse of data. And then, of course, the third option is to um, develop an original data set Um, you know, deploy a survey, um, set up some social media monitoring and, and use that as a data source. Um, you know, there's other ways you can go about getting data. Those are probably two of the most common. And, and you know, that will almost always be your most expensive option is having to collect data, new data. But, but bear in mind that there is a bit of a trade-off between collection costs and analysis costs. I mean, you may already have an incredible amount of data on Um, purchasing habits and, and a whole bunch of loyalty card data to go with it. But depending on how that data is structured and organized um, and also what regulatory concerns there are around how you repurpose it, it may be very hard to work with. Whereas for a thousand bucks, you could run a survey of like a thousand people or two thousand people, and it would be much more easy to analyze. So, you know, don't just when you're thinking about what your data source is going to be, um, there's sort of 5A, which is think about what your options are. But then there's 5B, which is think about costs. And, and when you think about costs, don't just think about the cost of acquisition, think about the cost of analysis. And from, from your perspective, what is the, the fastest, cheapest way to get good data? Well, I mean, I think this is such a dodge, but <laughs> good data is a very contextual definition. If I'm developing a cancer drug and I want to know about side effects, good data, my standard of good data is very high. If I'm doing a funny infographic for Acme Serial on what people like to do in the mornings, then good data doesn't have to be very good at all. <laughs> yes, right? Right. Yeah. So let's take a, an example then. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing those, those people listening who might not have a business themselves, who might be in small businesses and they're looking to, mm -hmm. to try something like this. Um, mm -hmm. I, would, I would assume that a mix of data they, that they already have about their customers, plus maybe a survey or two might actually be the easiest option. I, I think buying really? other people's data might be very, very expensive and, and that, that might lead to too to, to much cost. But so what are the examples of angles you've used in the past? And perhaps you can draw some conclusions sure. uh, from data that you have yourself. So you mentioned purchase history, purchase behavior, That kind of thing. So what sure. traffic even you mentioned. So what are the kind of angles you've worked on in the past on those type of data? Well, I mean, I also just want to mention that in addition, you know, it's not uh, not all pre-existing data sources cost money. There's huge amounts of data available in the in the public domain. And I would really encourage people to kind of go out there and take a look at what's available. Um, I did a piece for JSTOR Daily a few months ago about it was there was this very controversial article about um, the impact of, of mobile phones on on teens mental health. And I found tons of publicly available data online that, that allowed me to to do a, a new analysis. And so I, I think you just, um, 
you know, don't don't feel like just because you don't have a big budget, you can't do this kind of work. There's lots of data out there. And sometimes you can do things that are very clever with what what's already there. So how do you find it then? How do you find this data? Um, you know, it's good. I'm not going to dictate URLs of, over recording here. But, um, you know, if you basically do a search on on open data, publicly accessible data, there's, you know, a number of um, university data collections that are available Um um, things like the general social survey. Um, often it's really academic research that has, because in, in academia, people do tend to make their data sets open and often are required to do so. So um, there are lots and lots of data sources out there that you can find and some, and some that are kind of pay per use, but not necessarily very expensive. Right. And by the way, another one is, you know, in terms of creating new data sets, I've become totally obsessed with Amazon Mechanical Turk, because um, you can do a decent survey of, you know, 500 or 1,000 people on, on Mechanical Turk for a few hundred dollars. And, and interestingly, in academia now, the consensus is, you know, the Mechanical Turk surveys aren't perfect, but if you, you know, read up a little bit on, on the methodological issues, it's actually no worse than any other data source, really. <laughs> yeah, alternatives to, to, to Mechanical Turk are uh, SurveyMonkey does that. Google actually does that. I don't remember the name of the service, but Google allows you to to, to survey panels uh, mm -hmm. of people. But yes, there are a lot of there is a lot of ways to 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 survey randomers. I would say. And and the most important thing I would just say for people who are doing surveys is, um, you know, really take your survey yourself um, and then ask other people to take it for you before you deploy it because you know it's very you often don't realize the problems with your survey questions or how unanswerable they are until somebody else takes them yes keep it lean for a hundred percent so i asked you the question and then we went on a tangent as as usual sure. i tend to do that quite a lot but how do you come up with um, like angles from your own data you said web traffic purchase history well, I think we're back to that original question of like, what's your topic? And that really depends on, you know, whether you're going for general brand awareness or a specific message and, and thinking about headlines. Um, so, you know, what I would say is, you know, think of some possible topic areas and then, you know, it's, it's sort of like, here are five ideas for potential five or 10 or 20 ideas for potential data driven stories. Here are the five sources of data we already have access to you know, how do they match up? You know, where is their match? Great. And what, do you have any examples in the past of the type type of data like this that you managed to use? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, last year I worked with Sprinkler, which is a, a social media platform um, that has quite a breadth of, of data. Um, and they partnered with Forbes to develop the uh, list of the of the world's 50 most influential CMOs. And so I was the data journalist on that project. And it was really, um, it was really, really interesting, because Forbes had done versions of this report previously. But um, because Sprinkler has such an extensive set of um, social media analytics and because LinkedIn was a partner and then they had a set of social media data um, that we were of LinkedIn data we were able to work with, uh, Sprinkler had just acquired a company called Little Bird that has really cool tools for visualizing um, influence networks. We were able to think about it was really it was really cool actually because it challenged me to think about influence um, in terms of both the different dimensions of influence but then also um, how that manifests uh, online what are the things that we want to look for and in, in order to assess influence um, meaningfully and ultimately you know we made a point of trying to have um, a pretty eclectic range of indicators. So it wasn't just social media mentions and it wasn't just social media follows, but it was also mainstream media mentions. And then it was also the little bird data that looked at sort of the um, interconnections with other influencers and the LinkedIn data that showed um, connectivity within LinkedIn. And by combining all of those dimensions, we were able to come up with a much more robust measure of, of CMO influence. And then also to complement the core list of like, here are the world's 50 most influential CMOs with a bunch of other insights that, that surfaced about big picture patterns in CMO influence um, that surfaced through the process of looking at the data and making the list. Right. Okay. Um, 
So we've been talking about this for, for a while now, and I feel we haven't talked about the visual aspect too much because this is also part of what you, what you do best. So you're able to, to identify stories, uh, find the, the right data in order to, to tell this story. But then you mentioned infographics and, and things like this in, in, in the last few minutes. So how do you advise people to, to mm. present once they have this data in front of them or those, those results in front of them? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing, let me say, say actually two really important related things. One is I am like the least visual person on the planet. And the other is that until I started working with vision critical and finding my inner data nerd, I could not even do long division anymore. Like I'm not in numbers. I do not think of myself as a math person. I do not think of myself as a visual person at all. I think of myself as a storyteller. So I think that's really important. I think people often get scared away from doing data-driven content because they feel like they're not good at making infographics or they're not good at, good at numbers. And these are all manageable problems. Um, and when it comes to the visual piece, uh, a, a few different pieces of advice you know, popped to mind. If you're working on a, a big dollar project, you want a dedicated information designer to work with you on your infographics. And that's a real luxury, but it makes an incredible difference. And when you're doing that, you want to make sure you're working not just with a graphic designer whose work you like and whose aesthetic you like, but with somebody who has specific um, aptitude and, and experience around information visualization. Um, one of the reasons I've, I've gone back to Cheryl again and again on many projects is that she has the ability to, to come up with infographic designs that are not only clever and engaging, but that are able to capture multiple dimensions in a single image. So that's really powerful. Uh, if you have the privilege of working with a dedicated designer on this kind of project, I have kind of two pieces of advice. One is, think about what your most important takeaway is. So I mentioned that that um, insight from our project on social media analytics around how the vast majority of social media um, content comes from a very small number of users. That was our most important takeaway. And so that was where we really encouraged Cheryl to go to town, do something super cool. And she ended up making this boom box that visualized the concept of sort of noise versus signal in social media. And so, you know, I'd rather see people spend half their budget on one of one graphic and the other half on the other eight, so that that one graphic really stands out, gets picked up, gets shared, and so on. Um, second piece of advice is when you're working with a designer, um, make their work easy for them. I always create an Excel workbook with a separate sheet for each infographic I need like each chart I need created and um, and I put just the data I need, nothing that won't appear or inform the graphic. And I put at the top of each sheet, here's the key message. This piece is intended to convey like this is what this graphic needs to show. And then I create a crappy version of the graphic in whatever Excel will do and say like this shouldn't be a pie chart. It doesn't need to be a pie chart. But here's kind of what I'm trying to show. So you make the work of the designer much easier. And, and I've had many designers tell me that that's super helpful. Now, that's all if you've got the budget. If this is more of a DIY thing, um, then what I often find myself doing is, is just trying to get a step up from uh, Excel. If I'm working in Tableau for my data analysis, sometimes I create my images directly in Tableau. Um, a lot of the time I use a service called Infogram. Um, which basically just creates the same kind range of charts that you would get from Excel. You just sort of take your Excel spreadsheet and paste it in there, but it, they look a lot nicer and you have more control over the visualization. So I've done a lot that way. And then um, I also have become kind of obsessed with creative market, which is a kind of a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace where designers sell different kinds of creative assets. And I have purchased um, assets that have allowed me to make my charts look nicer, my infographics look nicer. So when I was doing this big project around um, digital parenting, I created this infographic called What Kind of um, Digital Parent Are You? And it was like one of those long infographics, and then it had a bunch of charts within it. And I I mean, if you look at it, I, I want I want your people to know I am not a designer. I cannot draw at all, but I'm really proud of this graphic because I was able to take the charts, 
I created an infogram and then restyled them using assets I bought on Creative Market and um, complement those with illustrations I got on Creative Market. And I ended up with um, a really unusual looking and distinctive infographic uh, that looked, I think, like it had been designed. I'm sure professional designers will tell me they could tell it wasn't done by a professional <laughs> designer, but I, I felt really proud of it. And so um, I think those are all tools that are, um, you know, can be really helpful for people who are trying to DIY it. Thanks so much for going through all of the, the range and the possible scenarios. As you said, people who have money, people who don't necessarily have the resources to do that. Uh, but regardless, I think a lot of people listening would have designers in their team, whether they're specializing in this or not. As you said, if you can prepare the ground for them and really make it easy for them to discover the data and, and really make it easy for them to understand what is the core information you want to display, then there's a good chance that this will turn into a good, uh, a good piece. Right. So I think we've gone through this extensive step-by-step -step together. And thank you so much for doing doing this. I know it's not that easy to go through all of those steps in an interview like this. Um, I'm not a visual person either. Um, so I'm going to check your infographic and see if it's good. No, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, so you thought originally that we would be talking about your article about the social cost of online marketing, but I really, or bad online marketing. I really thought that this topic was even more practical and that was something that really people could take away. Um, so I don't know if we'll have time to go in depth around this, the topic of this article that you mentioned, but let's, let's give it a chance for the next few minutes. So you made, I try to, to summarize this, this article at the start in the intro, but perhaps you have a better way to explain, you know, what's going on, uh, with bad online marketing, what's happening there and perhaps give us a, 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 a glimpse of the future of internet as it is right now. Where do you see, where do you see it to go in 10 years or even 20 years? Well, I mean, I, I, I need to be honest that I approach this conversation like, you know, the proverbial cranky old man saying, get off my porch. Right. Um, I have been working on internet stuff since, um, Wow, it's been more than 20 years now. I did my first like serious internet research project started in 1997. I did the research for um, when Bob Putnam was writing Bowling Alone, the book, and he wanted to look at the impact of the internet on social capital. I was in grad school at the time, and I was his research assistant to do that research, and that was more than 20 years ago now. So I've been kind of tracking the social impact of the internet for this is hor horrific. It's like basically half the time the internet's been around. <laughs> it's a weird thing to, to realize. And I, you know, when I did the research for Bob, I was like, you know, the internet's going to be great for social capital. And I had a totally different read of the data than, than what he, what he did. And, uh, and it was very little, I mean, in 1997, when I set out to do the research on the internet's impact on social capital, I literally read every single thing that had been written about the social impact of the internet. Cause there wasn't that much. There were like, I don't know, 50 or a hundred articles at the time. And I really held fast to that optimism. I mean, it's it's quite funny. Like at every stage, I've been like, no, this is going to, social media is going to be great. Mobile is going to be great. Like I always want to believe that it's all going to be great. And then I get gradually disillusioned and depressed. And so, you know, when I first got involved in social media as a, I didn't even think of it as marketing. And I probably wouldn't have done it if I'd known it was going to be marketing. But um, I... It's just like, I, I mean, I think partly because I think of marketing as selling stuff and, um, you know, fundamentally, I don't think that we, I think that's fueling people's desire to acquire more stuff is like the problem, not the solution. And so when I got into what you would now call social media marketing, it was before Twitter and Facebook, my husband and I started social signal in 2005 and said, you know, we're going to start this web agency and we're only going to do web 2.0 projects. And I think we were literally the first people in the world to say we're only doing web two. And so we, we started by building online communities for change oriented, like social change organizations. And that was pretty much our whole practice for, you know, five years, we basically just build online communities for different flavors of save the world kinds of organizations. We worked with, um, the elders, we worked with uh, TechSoup slash CompuMentor, Ties, like, you know, various 
um, really some wonderful here in Canada. We worked with Van City and Mountain Equipment Co-op. We, we did a lot of really cool projects. And it was such a privilege to be involved in the social web at that time where we really felt like we were fostering connections and conversations among people who really wanted to um, change the world, you know, and, um, and, and really wanted to use social media as a way of, of deepening connection and sharing ideas to make, you know, to solve problems. And then it very quickly became, and, and I was optimistic in those early days because I was like, yeah, Coke is going to spend money, but who wants to talk about Coke? And at the end of the day, it turns out that if you are prepared to dump enough dollars on the table and make really cool videos, you can get people to talk about Coke. They may not care about Coke as much as they care about, and I should say I'm talking about the beverage and not the drug. You know, they may not care about Coca-Cola as much as they care about climate change, but if climate change has depressing videos and Coca-Cola has really cool videos, that's where the conversation's going to go. And so, um, you know, what I've seen over the years has really been this kind of dumbing down um, and kind of coarsening of, of the online conversation as dollars flow in that have no purpose other than driving purchases. And, and then, of course, competing for the um, attention of people who could be watching people, you know, jumping out of hot air balloons, um, you have every other small company just trying to get attention. And so you have this explosion in like crap content. Like I just cannot believe how bad the vast majority of content marketing is. And I'm not talking about like bad strategy or like lousy web coding. I'm just talking about like this 500 word article has no purpose, says nothing and enlightens me in no way. And, um, and then of course there's like the endless spam, the endless online advertising. And, you know, we really are in this arms race for attention, um, that is, is leading people to create more and more crappier and crappier content. And driving out the actual sources of good content in the form of, of traditional, you know, investigative reporting. So where do you think the Internet's going to be in like 20 years? Where do I think it will be or where do I have a small hope of it going? <laughs> let's let's keep it. Let's keep it to the optimistic view. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and in all seriousness, this is kind of my approach to this. Like I I'm honestly, I'm really pessimistic, but what's the point? Like if we're all going to die in a ball of fire, we're all going to die in a ball of fire. So there's no real point in like preparing, unless you're prepared to like go off grid in a serious way. There's not really any point in putting your energy towards that. I'd rather focus my energy on the small chance that we can, you know, turn this incredible technology into something that can actually be an asset to us as a species and, and improve our life and our condition. Um, and I would say that the number one way that I hope the internet can support us going forward is by displacing our really toxic and I would argue terminal levels of material consumption with much more sustainable forms of online experience and consumption. So, you know, let's, let's just be concrete, you know, um, air travel is going to get more expensive barring some major breakthrough in, in energy, um, sources. And so we're going to look at a world where it becomes less and less accessible to go and have that, you know, European adventure or Latin American adventure or whatever it is. But, AR and VR are going to get better and better. And so maybe we're going to have really fulfilling experiences in VR that allow us to taste some of the kinds of experiences we would otherwise have to consume huge amounts of carbon um, to have. Maybe instead of going out and buying, you know, a whole new wardrobe, we're using on-demand services to get just the pieces we need. And so I think like the more that our digital lives can shift us away from consumption and towards borrowing and experiences, the more we'll lower our footprint. And the more that we can drive our digital experiences towards things that are meaningful, conversations that actually matter, rather than like, I mean, seriously, I don't need to see any more cute cats. Like, I just don't. I don't need any more cute cats. I don't need any more like, ooh, gee whiz, that's such a cool thing you just bought. I don't need unboxing videos. Like, enough with the commodity porn. And, and let's talk about creating digital experiences that actually help people create meaning. 
Well, that's that's quite an answer. Uh, thanks for making me think. I was, yeah, starting to get a bit weird uh, thinking about this VR and AR stuff, like, you know, traveling to, to Vietnam without actually traveling to Vietnam and just living this experience digitally from the comfort of your home, because in the future, we are unlikely to have jobs as well, or at least not jobs as we think uh, today. Anyway, that's, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Let's, let's move on. <laughs> what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years or 50 years? Um, I'm going to reframe that slightly and say, I think, you know, if you're a marketer, what would I say to a 20 and, I, and it's not even a hypothetical. What do I say to the 20 something marketers who I've worked with? And and I love them, actually. I love the energy of, of some of these folks who really have grown up on the Internet in a way that I obviously didn't. Um, and I, I think what you really want to want to think about as a as a marketer, whether you're early in your career, mid career or even late career is, you know, what what am I really here for? What am I? trying to accomplish, um, with this, this talent I have for marketing. And, you know, it's a funny thing to think about because <laughs> my 11 year old son has decided he wants to be a marketer. God oh, help no. us all. Oh God. And he's quite funny. Like he's got, he's, he's autistic and he's got, but he's also very, very verbal. And so he comes up with these like extraordinary ways of, of, you know, he's very rigid, like a lot of autistic kids. And so he'll like pitch us on things. Like he'll do such a sales job to try and get a new video game. But, like, this is going to be a really great experience. It's going to bring us closer together, blah, blah, blah. And he's got the whole pitch. And, you know, I'm really trying to redirect that energy to be like, okay, how can you use <laughs> your talents to get people to take actions that are going to actually make the world a better place. So like just this morning when he was giving us a pitch for some video game thing or other and talking about his marketing aspirations, we said, okay, how would you use your marketing talents to raise money for autism? And, you know, I really feel like, you know, that doesn't mean that everybody who's in marketing should be going to work for, you know, Greenpeace or UNICEF. But I think you should ask yourself, like, as a marketer, my job isn't just to sell the stuff other people create. I'm creating value. Increasingly, marketers are creators as well, because I mean, that's the whole shift towards digital and content marketing. We are creating content all the time. So ask yourself, like, what can I create that has meaning? And how can I build on my own skills and talents and passions so that as much of my career as possible is really almost expressive um, and using my, my passion to bring something beautiful into the world. And so, you know, if you're a young marketer who's also like a really passionate cook, go and work for craft and like think about how to do recipe and food content that brings people together around what you love about food. What is it that makes food special to you? Why are you such a passionate cook? Think about what makes that meaningful to you and then find yourself a marketing career that lets you express meaning. And I just come back to that again and again. The more marketers can focus on making meaning, the more um, we can have a positive impact and, and also careers that we love. Yeah, I, th this is why this interview is 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 getting longer than an hour. It's because I completely agree with you, and this is such an interesting <laughs> subject. And by the way, my my one of my younger brother has autism as well, and he has a, oh. Asperger syndrome. He's verbal yeah. as well, and and he would be very much like you described. He's not into marketing. He's into visiting one supermarket every Saturday, and spending eight hours there and spending time talking to his favorite shop assistants and all of that. Um, but he's working full time, but he's not, not as a marketer. Thank, thank God. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I definitely connect with you. Um, what are the top three resources you would recommend listeners? Mm. So I'm just going to go full nerd because I'm going to resist the urge to self promote. So just scratch that. And I'm just going to go full nerd and talk about my favorite digital tools. Now, first of all, how much have you guys already talked about Canva? Because I'm sure, you know, I, I, I still evangelize Canva to people a lot. But if you're thinking about creating, um, you know, shareables, I just go back to it again and again. I love it. Mm -hmm. um, another tool um, that I have recently become really fond of is Streak, which is a CRM that integrates with Gmail. Now, I'm just like lowly me. Um 
freelance writer. So I, I don't have, thank God, I don't have a sales pipeline that I maintain per se. I use um, Streak to manage my story queue and I have a workflow. I actually just wrote a piece for Zapier a couple of months ago about my workflow for capturing my story ideas and, and moving them to um, Excel and then, sorry, moving them to Google Sheets. And now I've just sort of tweaked that. And instead of landing in Google Sheets, it all lands in, in um streak. And I just think for like a huge range of marketing tasks, if you're a Gmail user, you're using Google hosted email, um, streak is a really fabulous tool. And then because I like to give you a wild card that I bet nobody else has mentioned. I am obsessed with my favorite thing that I own on the internet. And I have like a bit of a domain name habit. My favorite thing is my URL shortener, which is A-L-E-X-L-O-V dot E-S, Alex Loves. So if you go to Alex Loves Evernote, you'll find my blog post about Evernote. If you go to Alex Loves Mentors, you'll find my advice about being a digital mentor parent. If you go to Alex Loves slash speaking, you'll find my speaking page. Um, And so um, I host my own. When I first decided that I had to have a vanity URL shortener, I looked at Bitly and I looked at the other options. But the problem is if you host a vanity URL shortener with Bitly, if somebody else has registered, has has got a link that points to Bitly slash speaking, you can't use splash slash speaking. And so you end up having to use whatever kind of random characters um, Bitly assigns to your short link um, or a really long alternate. Um, I use uh, a self-hosted tool called URLs, Y-O-U-R-L-S. And that allows me to own my own namespace so I can have whatever I want as Alex loves slash whatever. Plus, and this is where it's really handy, um, unlike Bitly, like when you create a Bitly link, you can never change where it points to because otherwise people would be spamming. But with URLs, you can do that. And so this is actually part of my data storytelling strategy. When I create a report that has infographics in it, I create an Alex Loves short link to each graphic. And then I can go back in once the report, once I've uploaded all of those images to Pinterest, I can make the short link point to itself. So I can post something on Pinterest that says Alex Loves slash graphic one. And then I can go and make sure graphic one points back to that graphic that I've already uploaded. So that's a bit of a nerd point. Yeah, but yeah. bottom line is you got to have your own URL shortener. You're quite a nerd, I have to admit. I, I didn't think you were that much of a nerd, but now you're really a nerd. Uh, I am a real nerd. Right. So you, Alex, you've been an absolute pleasure. I thank you so much for going through all of those tricky questions that I've asked you. Where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Uh, absolutely. Well, I'm on Twitter as A.W. Samuel, although I have to admit I'm not as avid a Twitter user as I used to be. Um, you probably find more of me on Facebook, Facebook slash A.W. Samuel. Um, but my main home is my own website, which is alexandrasamuel.com. Awesome. Well, Alexandra, once again, thank you very much for your time. Lovely talking with you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. we I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir.
And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.